a welcome this morning and praying much for our time and looking forward to studying God's Word. Uh, we come this morning to our uh, third part of this series that we started, um, the Cross-Centered Church. And again, just to reiterate, the difference between the cross-centered church and the cross-centered life is that it's not simply focusing on how we as a believer simply are in ourselves to keep the cross the focus, but how as a church we are to keep the cross, the focus of the church, the ecclesia, those called out by God, those knit together through the gospel. And uh, particularly last week we looked at how Christ ordained the church to be cross-centered through the provision of communion. That He gave us communion to remember corporately that Christ died not just for sinners, but Christ died for the church. That He redeemed the people for His own possession. He's redeemed the church, this group of sinners who have been redeemed and sanctified through the blood of Christ. And so we celebrated communion last week to remind ourselves not just that He saved me, not just that He saved you, but that He saved us. And that we gather Sunday after Sunday to announce that and to remind ourselves of that. In part three this morning, though, we want to look at the practice of communion. And to do so, turning your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to look at a church, uh, we're going to look at a church that was practicing communion. Uh, we're going to see, though, that in their practice, there were some, some fatal, literally some fatal flaws. And we're going to see this morning that uh, this this right, this privilege, this practice of communion, which was meant to be the most, one of the most uniting aspects of the church, actually resulted in being one of the most divisive. Instead of communion being a time when all the church comes together and just senses God's grace and God's unifying of, this, of these sinners, instead, communion resulted in division and it pulled these, these people apart. Now, we understand that what divides many churches is often doctrine. But we're going to see this morning that it wasn't doctrine that was dividing the church, but it was, it was selfishness. It was selfishness that was bringing about this disunity. And we're going to see this morning that disunity is nothing new. Disunity is nothing new to the church. And Paul's letter unfolds that disunity was a, uh, a matter, an issue in the church from the very inception, from the very beginning. But we're going to see that Despite that, communion still remains one of the, the means, the very practical means, which God brings about the unification of His bride. And so we're, this morning we have a, quite a, an extended text from verses 17 to 34. So instead of reading that, I'm just going to walk us through the, the text, and then at the end we'll make some uh, specific applications for our church here. In our text this morning... Paul begins by giving the Corinthians, he, he begins by rebuking them for the way that they were practicing the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 17, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for better, but for worse. And so Paul, he reminds them, first of all, that they, have, they gather together as a church. Now, just to, just to remind you, the word church, ecclesia, it means gathering, but particularly for the Christians, it means the, the people of God assembled. And what should have promote, promoted this assembly is the united love for Christ. Paul is reiterating that coming together as a corporate body should have a positive result, a result of blessing, the result of bringing glory to God. But instead we see that what happened here 
was the exact opposite of God's intention for the church and God's intention for communion. He says in verse 18, I hear that divisions exist among you. Now, this is not the first time that Paul has addressed division in the Corinthian church. The very, he, he opens his epistle with the issue of division. There was a, another kind of division in the Corinthian church. Even if you want to, you can flip, flip back to uh, chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And he goes on, and he, in verse 12, he, he, he unfolds to us what this division was. People in the church, these factions had, had arisen over uh, specific leaders. Some people were getting themselves behind Paul, saying, oh, I'm behind Paul, he's the godly man. Others are saying, I'm behind Apollos. Others are saying, I'm behind Dan Naw. Others are saying, I'm behind Bob Hahn. And they're, they're saying, I'm, I'm special because I'm behind this guy. And you're not special, you're not as important because you're behind a, a less important leader. What's interesting, though, is as we look at that, what this division showed, it really showed was not that one leader was better than another, but it revealed the deep-seated pride of the Corinthians. Because in their minds, now get this here, in their minds, what made their leader better was not the leader, but it was them. In other words, they're saying, my leader's better because I'm behind him. My leader's the best, not because he's the best preacher, but because he has me on his side. See, pride finds itself not in you know, other people outside. Pride is the issues in our own hearts. It's in our own lives. And that's what this division was really showing. Right. And so, in other words, the Corinthians revealed not that they were concerned with rightness, Right? They weren't concerned with rightness. They weren't concerned with truth. They were concerned with themselves. They were concerned that they themselves be seen as being the best. Now, all of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? Every single one of us right, probably has been in an argument where in the back of our minds we know we're wrong. We know we're wrong. And yet, because of our own pride, we fight for what's wrong. We're adamant about saying we're right and you're wrong, even though we know the other person's right and we're wrong. The, the most pathetic example I can think of is uh, Raiders fans. Right? <laughs> Raiders fans. Okay, well, I'm a Seahawks fan, right? I'm a Seahawks fan. I'm from Washington. Grew up. My dad always, you know, we just love the Seahawks. The Seahawks are two and eight. All right. Now, Fairweather fans, they just follow their team. You know, whether they're winning or losing. You know, if they're losing, they just they take off. Seahawks fans, they're, they're, they love the Seahawks. But, but they're, you know, they're logical. So they, they still love the Seahawks, but they're not running around. They're 2-8. and eight. They're not saying, like, we're number one. They're like, you know, go Seahawks, hope for next season, right? <laughs> but what do the Raiders fans do? Raiders fans are 2-8, and eight, and they act like they're going to the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> Raiders fans are, like, driving around, and, you know, they're just telling everybody the Raiders are still the best. And what it reveals is not that they really think the Raiders are the best. They think that they're the best, right? Okay, bad example. But nonetheless, it just kind of shows that's kind of what's going on with the Raiders fans. That's what's going on with the Corinthians. It wasn't that Paul was the best. It wasn't that Apollos was better. It wasn't that Dan was better or James or Bob or Marcus. It wasn't any of that. But that they themselves thought they were better. 
and it showed the division was a result of their deep-seated pride. And so what Paul does to destroy this division and to, uh, to address this division, he does humble himself. He does explain to him and Apollos, you know, it's not about him or Apollos. But even more so, he goes to the very heart and he reminds them that to boast in one's rightness is the exact antithesis of the gospel. He reminds them of their calling. And he, and he says this in, in chapter 1, verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. In essence, he is saying, did God choose you because of you? Did God choose you because of your rightness? Did God choose you because of your bank account? Did, did God choose you because you were good? Right? No. And he, and he tells them, why did God do this in verse 29 of chapter 1? Why did God, why did God choose you? Why did God choose you? And he basically says, a loser so that God would get all the glory. So that you would not boast in yourself, but that through the gospel, the gospel forces you to boast not in yourself, but in the cross. It forces you to boast in Christ and in Christ alone. And later on in chapter 4, Paul reiterates that he and Apollos, they're nothing. What am I? What is Apollos? To boast in us, that's ridiculous. And then he again, he confronts them with this heart of standing behind certain leaders in chapter 4, verse 7. He says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had received it? Why do you stand behind me? Why do you stand behind Apollos? Why do you stand behind Christ and say, Look at me. You have nothing. And with that, Paul, he trounces the prideful heart that's holding up, propping up their divisions. Now, that was the first division that he confronts. But here in chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 8, Paul brings up another kind of division among the Corinthians. But here, interestingly, we learn that in this different kind of division, he actually, he somewhat condones this division. He, in some ways, he approves of this division. He approves of a division in which the side that you are on, it does matter and is important. He says, and look in verse 19, he says, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. What does that mean? Now, some commentators think that what Paul is saying here is he's being sarcastic. He's being sarcastic here. He's saying... In other words, he's saying, of course there must be factions among you. I mean, you know, of course you have to be right. right? I mean, how, how could you possibly actually humble yourself and be gracious and, and, and kind? How could you possibly do that? You could never do that. That wouldn't be right. right? He's being facetious. He's being sarcastic. And that interpretation, I think, has a lot of merit to it, especially uh, because Paul, especially to the Corinthians, he's often sarcastic. He uses a lot of biting sarcasm to confront the Corinthians. But I think that in spite of the merit of that sarcasm, I think that Paul is not actually being sarcastic, but he's actually approving of this division. The reason I take that is verses 20 through 22. He's speaking of that division and he's approving in that division for this sake. Verses 20 through 22. He says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper. 
and one is hungry and another is drunk? What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this, I will not praise you. Now, first of all, it's important to understand that Paul, in this particular area, he's not confronting the entire church. He's not holding the entire Corinthian church uh, guilty and accountable for celebrating communion in an unworthy manner. In these verses, Paul is explaining why there is division and faction in the church. There were saints in the church who were celebrating communion, who are partaking communion in a right way, but there were also some saints who are partaking of communion in an unworthy manner, in a sinful manner, in an unright manner. And this manner was producing not only division in the church, but it was also bringing serious judgment of God on individuals in the church. Again, the issue of this division was the Lord's Supper. Church history tells us that the early church would not only gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but that often beforehand, they would gather together and they would celebrate a meal together. Now, we kind of do it the opposite here on Sundays, right? We have liberty to do that. Um, we have communion. We celebrate the Lord's table. And then afterwards, we have a meal together. We share lunch. We sit at tables and we talk and we fellowship. Well, similarly, uh, church history tells us that the New Testament church would do the same thing in the reverse order. They would come together for a fellowship meal, which the entire church would gather together. They would share food. And then this meal would then lead right into the communion time of soberly remembering the work of the Lord on the cross and His soon return. So it modeled really the very first communion in which Christ and His disciples were in the upper room. They were celebrating the Passover. And then in the middle of the Passover, Christ he, he institutes communion. And so these early churches would do the very same thing. And this pre-communion feast celebration was called uh, the Agape Feast. It was called the Love Feast. Now, this is important because this has a lot of bearing on this text. Remember agape. Agape, agape love. Agape is a willful choice to find one's joy in sacrificing for the good of someone else. Now, the church is to model this. And the early church modeled this in many ways. You remember in Acts chapter 4 when the early church was very zealous to love one another? And they were laying all their goods. They were bringing all. They were, you know, people who had a lot, like Barnabas was selling land, and other people were selling land, and people who had more than one house were selling their houses, and they were bringing the proceeds, and they were laying them down at the apostles' feet. And then the apostles were taking those goods, and they were distributing it and giving it to those who had need. And it says that all the needs of the church were being met as people were sacrificing, and they were giving. Acts 4.34 says, There was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds and lay them down. So these saints, they're so overpowered by the cross, they're so overpowered by what they had received from Christ, that it was bringing them to give. It was causing them to give and to meet the needs of others who did not have. And it was this zealous love that fueled the agape feast. The agape feast was just another illustration of the, of the Christian love. And so what this agape feast was, if you will, it was a potluck. Right? It was a potluck. Everyone would bring food and, and they would share it. And that's what's going on, that's what's supposed to be going on here in Corinth. When Paul says in verse 20, 
that when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He is, what he's saying in those words is he's explaining to them why their agape feast and why their communion service results in anything but the Lord's Supper. In other words, you're gathering together supposedly to have this agape feast. You're gathering together supposedly to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But the result is it's the exact opposite. It's anything but what you are intending it to be. The heart of this selfishness, the heart of this agape feast is laid bare in verse 21. Paul says, each one takes his own supper. One is hungry, another is drunk. So what's going on here? Why are some hungry? Why are some drunk? Well, the drunk, drunkenness is obvious. Come together, you know, I celebrate the Lord's Supper using wine, and they're, they're getting drunk. They're drinking too much. Right. Why are some hungry? Some are hungry because they're poor. And they particularly came together with the church and to receive from those who had it. Now, our modern-day potlucks, they're a little, uh, they're, we're a little different, right? In the sense that for us, we all have something to bring. Right? Just by God's grace to us, pretty much every single one of us, almost every single one of us, right, has something to bring. It's sort of a faux pas to come to a potluck and not bring at least you know, a side or bring some soda, bring some plastic spoons. Like Everybody brings something. But that's not the case in the, for the rest of the world, and that wasn't the case in the early church. There are these men and women, they're legitimately poor, and they came, and it was okay for them to come without anything, and they were to be recipients. And it was an opportunity for the rich who had been given an abundance. It was God's grace for them to be rich so they could give and experience the blessing of giving. And it was God's grace for these poor to experience their poverty so they could experience the grace of receiving from those who had. But Paul's saying the exact opposite. He's saying that the rich, they brought their food, they brought extra food, but instead of sharing it, they ate it. They were having a hot dog eating contest in front of the poor. They were eating all the food, and then the poor, they had, no, they had nothing to eat. And so the communion time comes around, and instead of having seven being united, instead of leading to this overflow of grace and unity and fellowship, some people are going into it drunk, some people are going into it gluttonous, and some people are going into it hungry because they haven't had anything to eat yet. And so Paul asks these, these, these gluttonous, selfish people in verse 22, he says, do you despise the church of God? He's trying to get his mind around this sin. He's saying, are you planning this? Are you, are you coming to church on Sunday with, with an abundance of food and actually planning it just to eat in front of the poor? And are you despising the church of God? I, think that it's, I don't think that he really believes that. I think he's just shocked. He can't believe this is actually... Think about this for a second. If this happened at Cornerstone, if this was actually happening at Cornerstone, we would be shocked. If, people, if this, we found this was happening at our church, we would be shocked at this kind of selfishness. And to confront their selfishness, to confront their selfishness, he reminds them of the profound and solemn act of Christ ensuring that the cross be the center of the church. That the cross, that Christ be the center, not the self be the center. And so he does, that's what he does in verses 23 through 26. Right in the middle of this letter, 
verses 23 through 26, he inserts the provision of the Lord's Supper. He inserts in those verses exactly what we studied last week, the provision of communion. Matthew 26, 26 through 29, we looked at that provision. And Paul brings this provision and he inserts this to remind them that this is what is to guide their practice of communion. He tells them, he reminds them that the provision of this provision, because if a person truly grasps what the gospel means, he will be marked by love. So he's asking them, do you understand the cross? Do you understand the gospel? You nod your heads to say you understand the cross, but look at your church, look at your lives. Look at what some of you are doing. You're doing the exact opposite of what the cross is to promote and to provoke in you. So he explains that to them, he reminds that to them, but what's really unnerving in the Corinthians' practice of communion is to find out that there were some serious consequences to the way they were practicing this. Look at verse 27. He reminds them of the seriousness, the sobriety, the depth of what communion means. And then he says in verse 27, Therefore, regarding the weight, the profound communion means, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, this is where we want to hone in on our study. The phrase unworthy manner, it refers not to the status of the believer, but it refers to the conduct of the believer. It refers to the way in which he is celebrating communion. In other words, we're going to come back to this later, but in other words, Paul is not telling us that we must be worthy to take communion but that as we participate in communion, we do so as unworthy sinners, but in a worthy manner. We must partake of communion in a worthy, we must practice communion in a worthy manner. Paul says, therefore, that those who practice this symbolic but profound act in an unworthy manner, they shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Instead of communion being a time where the believers, where these believers were identifying themselves as one who had been saved by the grace of God and reconciled to God, their partaking in an unworthy manner made them guilty of demeaning the cross. In fact, I think if you if you really want to get all out of what Paul's saying, Paul is saying that instead of being made righteous through the blood of Christ, they in essence were becoming guilty of shedding it. In partaking in an unworthy manner, they weren't saying the blood of Christ has washed away my sins. They were saying, I'm guilty of shedding it. I'm guilty of murdering Jesus. That's pretty weighty what Paul is saying here. And I think that what happens as a result of this shows that this is, what, that this is really what's t- taking place. That's what Paul is saying. Now I just want to stop for a moment and say again that this text is very helpful in refuting again any sort of idea that eating the bread or drinking the cup has any sort of supernatural effect itself. It's not, it's not that it's eating the bread or drinking the cup does something to you. And why I say that is important again is to remind us that how we live our lives before communion, how we live our, our lives outside the world matters. 
people still think they can live however they want. They can live in the world. They can live in sin. They can live in ungodliness. They can show up to church on Sunday, sing some songs, take the bread and the cup, and therefore, because they took communion, God says, oh yeah, you're forgiven. You're right with me. Everything's fine. Communion has nothing efficacious in itself. In fact, I think the most powerful way to prove that is, we didn't talk about this last week, but in the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, all 12 apostles, all 12 disciples took the Lord's Supper. What does that mean? That means Judas took the bread in the cup. Judas ate the body. He ate the bread. Judas, he drank the cup of Christ. And in doing so, he drank the judgment of God to himself. So Paul, in this text, he reminds us, you can't just live however you want and then come and celebrate the Lord's Supper and leave thinking everything's right with God. To take the bread and the cup and profess that Christ has died for you, but to have just to have been living the exact opposite of what the new birth is to produce is to make us guilty. That's what he's saying to the Corinthians. It makes you liable for the blood and the body. Corinthians, you are held accountable for Christ and His blood. Verse 28 then is the heavy warning to make sure that as you enter the time of communion, you are prepared for the right practice. Verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he has to eat the bread and drink the cup. Now, to examine oneself, right? To test oneself. The dokimazo, you're very familiar with that term. It's like a, a metallurgist term. One who is, he's examining to see what kind of metal this is or to see how pure it is, right? The metallurgist, he, he examines the gold. He tests the gold to see how much carat of gold, how much is there of gold and how much is there of dross. And that's the word he uses here for the Christian. We must examine ourselves. Where do we stand with God as we come in and was you are prepared to, to partake of the communion. The Corinthians were sinning against one another. And then they were going right into communion. This time of serious sobriety. They were going in with serious sins that had not been confessed and repented of. There were public sins and public divisions in the body. The poor who had been sinned against were sitting in the same service as the rich who had sinned against them. And now the rich, these selfish sinners, were eating the bread and drinking the cup even though they were guilty of blatant sin against others. They were taking the memorial that was to pronounce the greatest source of unity while there was serious disunity. And that's what was mocking Christ. They were taking the bread, drinking the cup, saying, look what the cross does to our church. Look how it unites us. But they were lying. They were being hypocritical. There was no self-examination. There was no confession and getting right with God. There was no getting right with one another. And therefore, they were partaking of the bread and cup in an unworthy manner. And the result of this action is verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, he eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Now, if you're following along, you're going to ask yourself, what does this judgment mean? What does this judgment entail? How serious is this judgment? In other words, does this mean if I take communion in an unworthy manner, 
that I'm under the condemnation of God. Does this mean if I do this, right, is this some mortal sin that I'm going to go to hell? I think we need to ask that question. Well, for verses 30 and 31, they give us the answers. They explain to us what's going on and what this judgment is. Verse 30, Paul writes, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. The result of some of the Corinthian sinfulness in the midst of the congregation and their failure to examine themselves rightly, it led to the direct judgment of God. And he says, some of you are weak, some of you are sick. This is not spiritual weakness. Right? Dan did an excellent job, James. But this text here is talking about literal literal weakness and literal sickness. People were actually weak and they were physically sick because of God's judgment upon them. Because of their spiritual state, because of the sins of their souls, there was physical judgment taking place upon them. But then he even says even more greatly that some are asleep. Now, the Scriptures use the word sleep to refer to the euphemism of the death of a believer, the death of a Christian. So remember in Acts 7 when Stephen was being stoned to death and it says that he went, he went to sleep. He, he fell asleep. Paul says also in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And he's referring to the fact that Christ will return before all believers die. Some believers will still be alive when Christ returns. They will not sleep. That is, they will not die. So here in 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul is using the same thing. He uses the word sleep to refer to death. Now, he's doing this because death's a pretty big deal. Right? To die is a big deal. But to die directly at the hand of God is an even bigger deal. So you've got to imagine, for Paul to show up for the Corinthians and to tell them that people in their people he's talking to them out there, this, this letter is being read, people are sitting there and some people find out why they're sick. Or some people put two and two together and they realize why some of the believers had died. Now, now think about this for a moment. Think about life. In life, a lot of people know how they die or how others die. But almost nobody knows why they die. In other words, you, know, you may know that you're going you're to die of cancer. You may know, why, you know how, your, how your father died, how your mother died. You may know that split second before you hit head-on crash, you may know how you're going to die. But that doesn't mean you know the sovereign reason of God why you're going to die. That's what Paul is telling the people here. Now, for example, let's say next week I die. I hope that would be somewhat of a shock, you know, if not. Right? But let's say I die. And Paul shows up on Sunday. And he tells you guys, Marcus died last week. You know, hopefully, at least my wife, she would shed a tear. Right, she would cry a little bit. And then, you know, if he said, wow, you know, he died in a car accident. You know, you guys would be like, wow, that's really sad. But then what if Paul says, but I'm here to tell you why he died. Marcus died last week 
because he didn't preach the text right. Marcus died last week because he was stealing from the offering. Marcus died last week because he was swindling. You guys, would, your, your draws would drop. You would be like, God struck Marcus down because he was sinning against God and he was sinning in the church. Right? That's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. He is telling them exactly why people were dying. This was the direct judgment of God. This is heavy news. And he is telling them this with apostolic prophetic insight. He's telling them why God has sovereignly taken lives to shake them up, to bring serious sobriety here. Now, I think, let me just say this as a side note. In all practical application, this text is hardly telling us that we're sick because we're sinning. Except for this text, and except for other sovereign instances in the Bible, God never tells us why we are sick. In fact, the, the proper way to look at our lives, why we're hurting, why we're sick, why we're suffering, is because God is testing us. And so James tells us the way that we've got to look at our sickness, the way we have to look at our suffering, is to say God loves us and He's testing us and He's using that to conform us to Christ. So I'm not giving you liberty. And Paul is not giving us liberty to take this text and say, oh, this is why I'm sick. Right? Now, if there is major sin in your life, yeah, you better examine yourself. We'll, we'll get to that later. But I think it's important for me to say that. Knowing that some of you are sick, knowing that others are sick, knowing that others are suffering. Right? Paul is not saying that all sickness is a judgment of God. But he is unfolding this specific judgment for a specific purpose. And what we're asking then again is, what did this judgment mean? Did these people die and go to hell? Can we take communion in an unworthy manner and die and be cut off from God forever if we fail to judge ourselves rightly and are found guilty of the body and blood of the Lord? The answer is verse 32. Paul says, But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So here's our answer. To be judged in this context, it means what? To be disciplined. It means to be disciplined by the Lord. Maybe some of you are like, oh great, that sounds a lot better. Right? But the word translate discipline here, it means to train children to chasten or to correct. And why this is important is because discipline is entirely different than punishment. Punishment is punitive. It is meant to make the sinner pay for his sins. Hell is punitive. It is where sinners who did not repent and trust in Christ had to pay for their own sins. The Gospel offers us Christ's righteousness. The Gospel says Christ paid for your sins. And it announces that Christ can pay for your sins or you can pay for your own sins. The cross was punitive. It didn't discipline Christ. It punished Him. God poured out His wrath on the Son and Christ punitively paid. He bore the wrath of God on the cross. So that now believers do not have to face punitive judgment. But we face corrective discipline. The Bible, Hebrews 12, is adamant that God disciplines those whom He loves. He corrects us. 
He uses pain. He uses suffering. He uses trials to correct us, to discipline us, to instruct us, to conform us to Christ. And so Paul is using the word sleep and he's using the word discipline to explain to these Corinthians that they're being disciplined and not punished. They're being corrected, not condemned. Now, the means can look very similar, but the end is miles apart. For God, when He brings hardships on unbelievers, He is using that to bring them to the cross. And it's, it's, early, it's early, I would say, early punitive payment to, to show them that if they don't turn to Christ, then they will, they will face the full wrath. For the believer, our trials, it's always corrective. It's always for discipline. And Paul says this. He, he, he clears this up even further. God is disciplining you, in verse 32, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So he's saying, Corinthians, this discipline's drastic. In terms of discipline, I would say it can't get any more drastic for the believer than for God to take your life because of sin. But he's saying that God was actually doing this in grace. Some of the Corinthians' lives were directly taken by the hand of God so that they would not fall, fall headlong into the world and therefore face the condemnation of God. And so Paul's advice to avoid this kind of judgment, this kind of severe discipline, is very simple, verses 33 and 34. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. It's real simple. Be selfless. Serve. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange. In other words, you know what? If you know, if, you're just, if you have such a struggle with self-control and you know you're going to bring food, but then you can't handle the sharing it, then eat at home, eat your food at home, and then bring some food to give to the poor and share with them. Show Christian love. Be right with one another so you can be right with God so that communion will truly be the means for the church is unified. It will be a true testimony of the unity of the local church. All right. Now, that's a brief run-through of what's going on in Corinth. How does this apply to us? Are any of us here sick because we haven't partaken of communion in an unworthy manner? Any of us, I can't think of anyone who's died. Anyone here who's died because they didn't? take communion right in a worthy manner. Right, some of the direct applications and implications in that sense are not there, but there are some, still some weighty applications, I believe, for our church. And I would say that some of these applications, some may be more preventative, but some will be corrective, depending upon where you're at. So, first off, for our applications... Let us be aware that division is the result of thinking you are higher than others. Division is the result of thinking you are higher than others. Division is the result of, of thinking of your own importance. Division is just the result of selfishness. The division in the Corinthians was a result of this selfishness. And this, there was division and result of this selfishness. 
Now, again, I don't think that Paul is confronting the entire church. It wasn't that everyone was guilty of being divided. There are times in the church where you can't help being divided. People are sinning against you, right? There could be times when, when people of faction could rise up and stand for false doctrine. Therefore, those in the church will stand for the truth, and they will be divided against those who are following lies. And that division, in a sense, would be condoned. And Paul condoned this division as well. He doesn't say, just be united. Right? Just, put, just forget about it and just pretend like everything's fine and go celebrate communion. He doesn't just say, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. Right? Just overlook the sin and, and get on with it. Because that would leave sin unconfronted. God is concerned that there be unity, but that He doesn't just bring unity at the cost of, of truth and righteousness. The love of God for His sheep actually provoked Him to kill some of them in order to keep them from His wrath. And this wrath was directed, this, this discipline was directed at them because of their selfishness. So again, division in the church tells us that there is a problem. Whatever that division could be in any church, in our church, another church, division tells us there's a problem in the church. Church discipline is, a loving, is loving because it calls professing believer to repent of their sin and return to the grace of God. But the point is that division is the result of selfishness. This division in Corinth was a result of the pride and selfishness of some in the church. Division is a result then of thinking you are higher than others and more deserving than others. So to remind us again, what, what ultimately keeps unity in the church is humility. It's humility. Humility is naturally selfless because it sees others as more important than oneself. I know it's pretty, pretty elementary. But humility is naturally selfless. Why? Because it sees others as more important than oneself. So why? You look at people that are humble and you ask, why is that person humble? Because he sees others as more important. Pride is naturally selfish because it sees oneself as more important than others. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's pride in the preacher. I don't care if it's pride in, in just the, the church. The result of pride is because that person thinks he is more important than other people. And he is standing in his own mind over and against and above other people. What this means then is that humility unifies. Pride divides. Humility unifies. Pride divides. Arguments and division can become very, very complicated in the church. I grew up in the church. Many of you grew up in the church. I, almost every church I went to, even God-honoring, Bible-preaching churches, I watched division happen. And almost every time I look back and I see that the result of this, the, the cause of this division was pride. It was pride either in leaders or it was pride in, in men and women in the congregation who rose up against leaders because of their own self-righteousness and their own self-worth. But the antidote to all the complexities of division is humility. It's simple. It's humility. The arguments in divi of division can become complicated, but the only antidote is the simplicity of humility. Unity is hard, not because the solution is hard to find. 
but because it's hard to be humble, right? Unity's hard, not because the solution's hard to find. The solution's simple. But living out the solution is hard. What we further learn from this text is that selfishness brings then the exact opposite of its intention. Selfishness brings the exact opposite of its intention. The Corinthians, they thought a full stomach would satisfy. Paul tells them it brought about the result of death. Which means this, here's the principle. The intention of the selfish is their own pleasure, but the final outcome results only in pain. The intention of the selfish is our own pleasure, but the final outcome is only pain. I love the line in the song, Jesus, I thy cross have taken, where it says, In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. That's the Christian's motto. He's taken up his cross. He's dying to himself. What does that mean? He's being selfless. And he's finding his satisfaction not in seeking his own self, but in seeking others. The Christian knows more than anybody else. When he seeks for only for himself, it never results in what he's seeking. It always results in guilt. It always results in emptiness. And all of us have experienced in that when instead of seeking after the good of others, we seek after ourselves, and it leaves us empty, it leaves us shallow. It leaves us wondering why in the world we continue to seek after our own ends. The intention of the selfish is their own pleasure, but the final outcome results only in pain. Selfishness blinds us into thinking that getting ourselves what we want at the cost of hurting others will satisfy. The gospel says that getting others what they need at the cost of hurting oneself will satisfy. And we don't naturally think that way, which means we must learn to think the opposite of how we naturally think. Our flesh labors to convince us that living for ourselves will bring us the satisfaction we seek, but the cross says dying to self and living for others gains us the satisfaction we seek. And so what Paul's saying for the Corinthians is that that was, that was what would have brought them the joy. The joy would have been for the rich to show up and to share and to go into communion saying, look what the cross has done. The cross didn't just save me from my sin. It enables me to serve. It enables me to love. And now we're taking communion together in a united front, saying, look at, the, look at the power of the gospel in our church. Look what the cross does to these sinners and uniting them. All of us need a healthy dose of the truth of what it means to love. And that to love means to be selfless. To love means to serve and to give at the cost of oneself. Now, let me say something to those of you who may find yourself in a division that's not brought about by you. If you find yourself in a division that's not brought about by you, and you you find yourself being on the side of truth, that's a good side to be on. But let me humbly remind you that God's right, you're never right. You may be on the side of truth, you may be on the side of the one who is right, but that doesn't mean you're right. What I mean by that is, God's true, we're liars. The only reason that you are on the side of the truth is because of God's grace. You're on the side of truth because of God's grace. Which means that being right and being arrogant do not go hand in hand. If you find yourself in a division, 
remember that it's only God's grace that you stand in the truth. If you're in an argument over truth and your pride flares up, you have ceased to fight for truth and now you're fighting for the inflation of your own ego. The humble heart breaks over disunity. The humble heart strives with all its might to be unified. It will never seek unity at the cost of truth or righteousness, but it will never seek truth or righteousness for the sake of self. So Paul says that two chapters later in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love unifies Love is humility. Humility is love. Therefore, secondly, communion must be done in unity. Right? This is pretty simple from this text. Communion must be done in unity. Communion is the practical means by which the church remains cross-centered. Paul says that in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Right? The, the commun- communion proclaims the cross proclaims the gospel, proclaims that grace is free to you but was infinitely costly to God. Communion reminds us that there is no work sinners can do to be saved, but there was much work God did to save sinners. But what Paul is saying here is that communion is a corporate act. It is is meant to unify the church. That's, That's another part of the grace that's involved in communion. It's not that we drink the cup and eat the bread and something happens. But that as we drink the bread, as we eat the bread and drink the cup together, we're reminded that God purchased us as sinners who were once living for ourselves and now He's shackled us to Christ and He's given us hearts that want to love Christ by loving and serving one another. And so communion unifies us. It unites us. The Corinthians approached church with the mentality of what's in it for me. They came to church on Sundays. They came to Lord's Supper. What's in it for me? They saw churches existing for their own needs to be met, but saw little of themselves as being servants of Christ and therefore servants of one another. So let me just encourage you, right? Let me just encourage perhaps some of you. If you find yourself part of our church, whether you've been here for a while or whether you're members, there's a danger for all of us to be physically here but to not have a heart of service. There's a danger for all of us to, to show up to church with the consumer mindset. We treat the rest of the world as consumers, what the world gets for us. We cannot bring that mindset into the church. We must come into church. We must come together corporately to not think what's in it for me, but what can I do for others? How can I serve? How can I minister? We must go to, to flock this way with a heart to minister, heart to serve. The Lord's table is not only meant to remind us of what Christ has done for us, but it is meant to remind us of what we must do for others. The Lord's table reminds us that if Jesus has washed our feet, we ought to wash others. Communion reminds us that if Christ died for us, we ought to live for others. And I would say as well that it doesn't just remind us of our need to serve others, but it reminds us of our need for others. It reminds us that I come to church not just to receive from God. 
and then just to pour out. But I receive grace from God by receiving ministry from you. You receive grace from God by receiving ministry from others. So again, if you're, not inv- if you're not involved in church, if you're not involved in flock, if you're not opening up your own life to other believers, if you're not opening up your own life to receive correction and exhortation, or if, or if people have corrected you and rebuked you, but you flared up and you didn't receive it in humility, then what you're saying is you don't want correction. You don't need the church. And you're, you're rejecting the love of God. You're rejecting the grace of God. And so communion reminds us not just of our need for the cross, but of our need for each other, for our need of being ministered to, not just ministering to. Thirdly, communion reminds us that we must preserve and seek after relational unity. There there are divisions and factions of an immature kind like the Corinthians, but there are also factions of a more personal manner that can even take place among the godly and the mature. We see that in Philippians 4. Paul says, I urge Yodia, I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, you command, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. And we take from that, these, these women, these were prominent women, these were godly women, these were godly servants. They were helping promote the kingdom of Christ. They were preaching the gospel. They were ministering. And Paul could affirm these women's lives. But, even though they were godly, there was a division that had risen up. They were not in harmony. And Paul says, you know what? This is so serious. This is not just a personal issue between these two people. Can you imagine if I got up here and I said, you know, Bob, Dan, I urge you, I exhort you to live in harmony in the Lord. You know, and I, if I said that, everyone would start sweating. Everyone would be like, wow, this is serious. And that's what Paul did. He had this letter read. Marcus, I urge you to live in harmony with Bob. There's division among you. I urge you to live in harmony with Dan. There's a division and it's not right. And what we see from that text, what we see from division is, division between two members is not a personal matter. It's a corporate matter. Personal division is ultimately public. Personal division, whether it's just among two people, it has ramifications and it affects the whole church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So no believer has the right to say, this is just my struggle. Don't bother me about it. This is just my issue with another believer. It's only about us. Don't talk to me about it. No. It's so, it's so corporate that it can deem being confronted from the pulpit. It can deem being confronted for the sake of the whole church. And so we must be mindful that disunity and holding on to personal grudges has no grounds whatsoever. And this is why communion is given to us as well. Communion forces us to be reconciled to one another. It forces us, by the grace of God, it demands that we be unified around the cross. It reminds us that a true cross-centered church will be a unified church. You cannot hold grudges or be embittered against another member of the church and then think that all is well when you eat the bread and drink the cup of Christ. In fact, Paul says you're in grave danger to do so. Paul is very adamant about the results of eating the bread and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner with with disunity in your heart and disunity in the church. Serious consequences. 
The word sleep again lets us know that it's not an eternal wrath of God. But I ask you, who wants to face this kind of discipline? I'm taking, what I'm saying is that I believe this kind of discipline is legitimate for today. I'm not saying that we can know. I'm not saying that we could particularly actually know why God could do that or if he did that. But he can do this. Therefore, communion demands we examine ourselves. The cross is weighty. The cost of grace is weighty. And the practice of communion is sober. It calls us to self-examination, to make sure we're right with God by being right with one another. Which means, finally, that unity requires proper self-examination. If we want to be unified, if we want to partake of communion in a proper manner, unity requires proper self-examination. Which means that proper self-examination must be objective, not introspective. Now, I bring this up, I think this is important, because I don't know how relevant this is, but I know there are times, and I think it's even been taught, not in our church, but I've heard it taught elsewhere, that there, you know, sometimes you should examine yourself and see if you're worthy to partake of communion. And so what happens is some believers, you know, they, they're all worked up, they come to church and they realize that they had a bad week, they've just been sinning. I sinned too much this week, or they come to church on Sunday and you know the bread and cup are coming around. They're like, I'm too, I'm so numb. My heart's so hardened against God. I, or I'm not, I'm not doing well in my walk. And so they let the cup go by. And they think, I examined myself, and I found myself unworthy to partake of communion. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, if that's what Paul was saying, Who in here would be worthy to partake of communion on Sunday? None of us. That's the whole purpose of communion. That's the encouragement of communion. The bread and the cup remind us we can never be worthy of God. The bread and the communion, that's the grace. No matter how messed up we feel, no matter how cold and hard-hearted our hearts are, communion reminds us the cross is greater than our sin. So we can't become legalists at communion and say, I'm too unworthy to take the cup. Yes, you're too unworthy. You're too unworthy to have Christ died for you. That's why grace is so massive and so mighty. Christ died while we were sinners, and even now we're still sinners. We're still hard-hearted. We're still cold to God. So communion reminds us that grace is great, that we're great sinners, but we have a great Savior. So that is not how we examine ourselves. We're not examining ourselves saying, is my heart, am I, have I been righteous enough, good enough to take communion? What Paul then is calling for is a self-examination for preparation for the table, not qualification. This is about preparation, not qualification. And specifically, this examination is about unity. Paul is talking about what is going on in the church at the time of communion. He is specifically saying that their agape feast, their love feast, had turned into a gluttonous, selfish affair, a disunifying event. And because of that, how could they ever say, as they ate the bread and drank the cup, wow, we're unified? 
So what's Paul saying? He's not saying examine yourselves and see whether you should take the cup or not. He's saying examine yourselves and if you see sin in your life, get right so you can take communion. You examine your life. If you're not unified with a believer, you get right. What this means is there is no excuse to not take the bread and the cup. To say, hold off for a minute. We can't say, I'm going to wait till next month till I feel better. I'm going to wait till next month to get right. No. He is saying you must get right so you can take communion, so the church can be unified. Perhaps for members of CBC, the temptation is not so much to partake in an unworthy manner, but to abstain in an unbiblical one. What this reveals then, if someone is not unified at CBC, and they let the bread and cup pass, but have made no attempt at being reconciled or unified, or if they still harbor bitterness in their heart, this is why this is serious. If you do not take communion because you know you're not reconciled, what you're saying is you rightly understand that you don't want to be held guilty for taking the blood and body of Christ. But here's why this is even more serious. To pass up the Lord's table because of disunity may allow you to not be held disciplined and guilty for the blood and body of Christ. But even more weighty, you are held guilty for being unforgiving. Christ said very clearly in Matthew 18 in the parable of the unforgiving slave. Remember that slave? He was, he had, he was fine announcing his own forgiveness. He received forgiveness and mercy from his master. But then the one which he was not united with and divided against who owed him even less, he wouldn't forgive him. And Christ said that slave was condemned because he didn't show mercy. You will show no mercy. You have shown no mercy. And so if you do not forgive others, you may escape the falling asleep associated with the wrong manner of communion, but you may place yourself under the greater condemnation of God. You're not forgiving. So what this means is we must be unified. We must be right. And let me take this finally one step further. This is not simply for communion. Remember Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 23-24. I've often heard this text used in communion. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering, and therefore before the altar go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. I think it's legitimate to use that in connection with communion, but not only communion. In other words, this is it. Sin does not just affect communion, it affects all your worship. This unity is affecting your, your singing. This unity is affecting hearing the Word. This unity is affecting your worship and your service and your ministry. So this examination is not just for communion. Yes, the greatest ramifications are for communion. But we must be right so that as we take communion, we're announcing what the cross has done in the church. So I ask you, are there unresolved conflicts? Is there division in here that you have not taken care of? You must take care of it. And perhaps the greatest application would be in our own marriages. Is there division in your marriage that has not been fixed? Is there division in your marriage that has not been taken care of? This is where we must strive to be unified so that as we come together to announce, as we come together as a cross-centered church, 
we're announcing this is how powerful the cross is. That even though I'm a great sinner, and even though we're all great sinners, the cross takes selfish, self-centered, selfish sinners and unites them under the cross and gives them hearts to love Christ and serve one another. May the cross continue to be the center of our church. May the gracious provision of communion result in our worthy practice of it. We pray. Father, that is our prayer, that the provision of communion to us would result in a worthy practice of it, announcing your sweet mercy towards us, and announcing, as we partake of it unified, the great power of the gospel, to unite people who were once dead in sin, living only for ourselves, but who have now been reconciled to you, and therefore can love and serve others. So we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you for this text. We pray that we would learn to practice communion in a worthy manner. In your name we pray. Amen.